We're going to be in John 4 for a little while. It's a long chapter. It's a long narrative. It's a long story. As I was reading through it several weeks ago, I concluded early, I would not try and do this in one evening. You would not be happy with me. You would either have too much information or it would have been too long. So we decided to go ahead and divide it up. I love this story. Even more now that I've had the opportunity to study it and be ready to preach it. Let's go ahead and read the first 11 verses. It says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew that, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. God, we ask now that you would help us to see the glory of your Son and that we would allow our faith to increase, that we would trust him more, that we would reject any of our own self-righteousness. We just pray that you would bless the preaching of the word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. The brutality of the Holocaust would turn even the most callous of souls to tears, how Hitler turned humans against humans, convincing them to execute some of the most heinous crimes in history is still mind-boggling today. Over estimated 6 million people murdered. But I do understand, well, I have never personally struggled with the idea of being racist to any one people group. I know that our country in its past has struggled But I do understand how those who lived during World War II may have been, may have had extreme hatred and anger towards those who participated in the brutality of the Holocaust. Whether it was from personal experience or observing the media coverage, what took place was enraging, to say the least. Now, many of you can feel the hatred being rekindled in your own mind as you've thought about either a movie you've seen, a book you've read, um, going through school and studying this. I'm sure most of you didn't spend your afternoon thinking about war crimes committed against the Jews in the 1940s today. But in a small way, this is helpful to understand the cultural situation of John 4 and this interaction between a Samaritan and a Jew. The disgust you feel for Nazi Germany or those who participated actively in the Holocaust is the same hatred the Jews would have felt towards the Samaritans. 
this, this story that only John records in the fourth gospel, and this, I'm sorry, in the fourth chapter of his gospel, would be scandalous to the reader. And this is the point. As those who would have read John's gospel, and they get to this point of it, there would be the, wait a minute, wait a minute. And here's why. Jesus took the direct route north from Jerusalem to Galilee. When it said in the narrative, he was going to go from uh, where he was at to Galilee. And the reason is very simple. Jesus doesn't want, as we already learned when he had the interaction with Mary, he doesn't want a public display. He doesn't want a lot of attention. This interaction between John's disciples and his disciples was too much attention. The Pharisees were picking up on it. So he decides to go away from this situation and decides to go to Galilee through Samaria. In contrast to most Jews who took the longer indirect route east of the River Jordan because of their hatred for the Samaritans. So it was a direct route right from where he was at to Galilee. But instead of going through the filthy peoples of Samaria, of the Samaritans, Jews, good Jews, holy Jews would go around, a long way around. What's interesting in the text, and we're not going to spend a lot of time this week looking into it, when it says in verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. There's two reasons why he had to. One, he was in a hurry. Or two, he was on a mission. And I like both reasons, so we can say they're both right. He had to because he was in a hurry. And two, he was on a mission. And that mission was the Samaritans, as we will learn. As a result of this racial uh, so the, the animosity between the two, the Israelites or the Jews and the Samaritans, really is because the Samaritans are descendants of the northern kingdom. So they used to be a part of the Israelite kingdom. And what they ended up doing is intermarrying foreign settlers after the fall of Samaria back in 722 B.C. And because of this intermarriage, there was no longer the pure race of Israelites, no longer pure race of the Jews. And so this racial intermarriage caused there to be a massive divide between Israel, between the Jews, and Samaria. So the Samaritans continued to worship, as the Jews did. They worshipped Yahweh. And for, and for a while, they, would, they clumped in a bunch of other gods. So this is where even more the Jews became uh, hostile towards them. But eventually, they, they landed on following only Yahweh, building their own temple. They built a rival temple in Mount, Mount Gerizim which they believed to be the site of the altar where Abraham prepared an offering for Isaac. But this would eventually be destroyed. And what's interesting about the Samaritans is they only believed the first five books of Moses were the only inspired word of God. Everything else was not. So they only held to it. But this isn't the only reason why the readers of John's letter would struggle with this account. Now I know it's probably hard for us to understand how interracial marriage and theological disconnect from uh, where the temple belongs is such a reason to hate these people. But in that day, it was absolute reasons to reject. This is why Jesus used the good Samaritan. When we hear about that, that's like saying the good, active Nazi German, which you don't put those words together. But that's what Jesus is saying. And they're going, that does not exist. People who kill Jews is bad. And that's his point. But asking for a drink of water from a woman who had come to the well alone, Jesus himself is being alone 
broke all the rules of Jewish piety. And uh, we're going to spend a lot of time culturally in the next few weeks or next week about what's going on here. But just for the sake of introductory to the story, he is taking uh, the initiative to invite the accusation of acting in a flirtatious manner is what's going on, to put it discreetly. And so what's, what's, what's happening in this situation, John sets it up. The disciples are clearly not there. He mentions that it, they have gone to buy food. Jesus is there alone. We're going to talk about his humanity uh, next week as well, how Jesus is sitting because he's tired, he's wearied. He's definitely, John is constantly putting his back to um, his humanity. But what is interesting about this particular situation is that Jewish men usually did not speak to women in public, and this is the reason why. The fact that Isaac, I'm sorry, Isaac and Jacob found their prospective wives in a public setting at the well, which is Genesis 24 and Genesis 29, created the sort of pre, uh, precedent that would further have cautioned devout Jews. Well, this is, and they did this a lot. Something would happen and they would create rules around it. So all of a sudden there was this rule. You don't speak to women in public. Because if you are speaking to a woman in public, it means that you are interested in her in a marital status. So you should avoid speaking to women in public, especially at wells, which were known to be places where men could, quote, pick up women. So that's the scenario that John's setting up for us. There's a one woman by herself and Jesus by himself, and the conversation starts. This whole situation had scandal written all over it, and that's the point. John writes it in this way. Look at how the disciples react to this in verse 27. Just then his disciples came back, so this is at the end of their dialogue. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Because clearly Jesus wanted to be talking with them, so they weren't going to interrupt their master. Sometimes we can have this impression that Jesus is a contrarian. He likes to be contrary, just for the sake of it. And I have this in my nature. My son, unfortunately, oldest son, has this in his nature. So if we say it's green, it's blue. If we say yes, it's no. If we say now, it's later. Just because it's fun to be contrarian. But that's not what's going on with Jesus. Jesus doesn't like just to come into the temple and flip over tables because no one else is doing it. <laughs> he doesn't like to walk on water because no one else can. That's not, he's just not contrarian in nature. He seems contrarian and he is contrarian because of the culture of what's been created. So everything our Lord partook in while on earth had a purpose behind it. And this interaction is a good example of his purpose. Jesus was not under what we would say cultural or religious preference. He saw people in a way that most cultures cannot. He saw all humanity. This is the difference. And this is what we're going to learn from this section. Is that he saw all of humanity as equal. As equal. Not male and female. Not Jew and Gentile. Not good and bad. But saw them as sinners. He did not judge them according to their, according to their morality. For that would be futile. How can you judge someone according to the morality when the, when the Father requires perfection is the only way to measure up. So everyone fails. Therefore, everyone is equally in need of a physician, which he is describing himself as to be the physician. So to look at the outward morality of a person would mean 
nothing to Jesus as it relates to their need of him. So as Jesus says, he did not come to transform the outside of humanity. He did come to clean up, or he didn't come to clean up their act. He came to save sinners from their death. So John is looking or shifting the reality of the question of the readers in this mind. This is what he's going to play with. Here's the question. Who deserves to hear the gospel? This whole chapter 4, that is what John's going after. Who deserves to hear the gospel? Have you ever think about that concept closely? Who deserves to hear about the love of God on their behalf? Of course, we all say, well, everyone, of course. Everyone deserves to hear that. But unfortunately, we all actually don't believe that. There's a side of us, there's a part of our nature that struggles with that. Whether you believe it or not, you don't actually all the time believe that. And here's how I would portray this to you. If you were honest, there are some people who just need to be left in their own destruction. The pain and suffering they have caused should never allow them to be considered, or that punishment should not be considered to be removed. So let's just go back to the Holocaust for a moment. If you have ever been to a concentration camp and seen the horror of what took place there, there is a side of you that wants those people who inflicted all of that pain to suffer for what they did. You want there, in other words, to be justice because of all of the injustice to the innocent. To put it concisely, bad people deserve punishment. We all feel that. We felt it in our own country, 9-11. We felt it in the Vegas shooting. We all feel the sense of injustice. We don't like it. There's just a little bit of us that feels hell is appropriate for some people. Some people deserve it. There's a special place. They should go there. But let me ask you the question again. Who deserves to hear the gospel? When we think about relative goodness, right? Not not goodness according to the law, according to God's sentence, but just relative goodness. We think of people like, for instance, in the media recently, Billy Graham or even Mother Teresa. They, they would deserve, they, they have relative goodness. They would, they, we would sit with them and say, yeah, they would at least need to, you know, we need to take the time at least to share the gospel with someone like that. Why not? When you think there are people that deserve a chance at receiving the grace of God and others who need to stay in their path to hell, then you begin to feel what's going on in this passage. Now, we all love this phrase, Jesus, friend of what? Sinners. We love that phrase. There's been songs written about it. It's a great phrase, yes. And why do we think that? Because we know we're sinners, and we want Jesus to be our friend, right? So Jesus, friend of sinners, good phrase. When they read that phrase, the readers of the New Testament, when the apostles wrote that phrase, They didn't have the same concept in their mind as we did. That would have been confusing to think of the way that we read it and go, yeah, Jesus for the sinners, that's good, that's a good thing. See, we have a category of sinners when it comes to this phrase. This is how the category goes. We have have Jesus who's the friend of little s sinners, and then we have Jesus who's the friend of big s sinners. 
And in our mind, Jesus is the friend of little less sinners. The people who do little sins. The normal people. This, the, the normal American person. Not the person in charge of the Holocaust. No, those who participated in it. That's big S sinner. But all of us in this room, we're little less sinners. And yes, Jesus would definitely want to be a friend of us. But Jesus is a friend of big S sinners? No, that's not what he means. So let me rephrase it to a place where you would go, ah, mm, I don't, that's, that's, I struggle with that. Jesus, friend of Nazis. Now we chuckle and think, oh, that, that, Jesus would never, that, that doesn't make any sense. But that's what they meant when they wrote, Jesus, friend of sinners. No way, there is no way that would ever mean that. That's not, that's, that, that can't mean that. Well, you know, Jesus never put a qualification on a certain level of morality or for a human to be in contact with him. There was not, you had to be at least here to be in contact with me. He loved all sinners. He shared grace to all sinners is the point of this story. As a matter of fact, Jesus loved all sinners to the point that he gained a reputation that was not flattering, but rather offensive. Turn with me real quick over to Luke. We're going to be in Luke and Matthew for just a little bit, just to gain more context of what's going on here between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. Luke 15. Multiple times Jesus... This isn't just a one-off comment. This isn't one time Jesus described this way. We're not quite sure what they meant. Multiple times... Luke and Matthew talk about this interaction. Luke 15, 1 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Well, why would they want to do that? Well, clearly is isn't because Jesus is offending them. He's drawing them into him with grace. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. She'll just change the phrase. Think of it as, This man is receiving people who are clearly not acceptable. Their actions are not acceptable. Morally and culturally, this is why they are looking down upon them. Why would Jesus want to be around them, the scum of the earth? He not only accepts them, but to eat with someone in that culture is to approve of them. Is to be intimate with them. So to say that you are eating with somebody, you just don't eat with anyone. You are saying, I Know them and I accept them. Matthew 9 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose up and followed him. Now we hear that and we're just like, Yeah, Matthew was a tax collector. But you don't understand the offense that tax collectors had in that culture. It was horrendous. It's like if you're walking by and he sees a Nazi guard who's guarding a Holocaust. I'm uh, sorry, he was, he was harding a concentration camp, and he says, why don't you be my disciple? The culture hated tax collectors for what they were and what they did. And it, the writer of the New Testament made sure that we understood Jesus went to the hated of the culture and said, you come with me. You be a part of my discipleship. Now turn over with me to, if you're still in chapter, Matthew chapter 9, look at verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And turn over to Luke chapter 7. In Luke 7, this is where Jesus own assessment of their thoughts. So Jesus now will verbally affirm what they are saying. He gives his own assessment of himself to them because he already knows what they're thinking. <clears throat> so he says in verse 31, 731, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like the children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus gained a reputation of associating himself with the scum of society. He did it to the point that he was being considered to be one of the most uh, considered one of them simply because of the, he would not disassociate himself from them. Now, this is, there's, there's, a, there's a reason why the religious leaders went after him in this way. is because Jesus' actions were embarrassing the religious community. They had set up a moral code. They had set up a moral standard. Of course, not the standard by which Jesus had set up or the law had been set up. But they had set one up outside of that. It had to do with culture. And Jesus is not, he is clearly, because of the miracles he's performing in his teaching and his knowledge, he's clearly sent by God. And yet, you are making all of us, Jesus, look ridiculous because we can tell you're a prophet, but you are not holding to the standard. You are not holding to what is pro appropriate because of how you're acting. Well, there's a story that follows Luke 7. And it comes right after Jesus' own assessment of sitting and being a drunkard, and being a gluttonous, and a friend of sinners, and a friend of tax collectors. There's this beautiful story, probably one of my most favorite stories in all of the Bible. John 7.36, this is what it says. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house, and reclined at a table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner. This is a simple way of describing her occupation. When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered, saying to him, remember, he said this to himself. He didn't say it out loud. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. 
Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with oil. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? He said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This woman did not deserve the respect or grace of God. She had forsaken that when that, that she had forsaken a lifestyle or that what would be appropriate for what we would describe a disgusting lifestyle. She surrounded herself, or Jesus ended up being described as surrounding himself with sinners. He didn't qualify who would be allowed, who could come to him for grace, who deserved his grace. He said, this woman, who clearly by the culture around him, rejects her. And Jesus says, your faith, not the way in which you deserved grace, not because you positioned yourself for grace, But her faith is what made her whole. What the reader should feel from John at this moment, and even from Luke, what we should feel is that it doesn't matter what the culture or religion of the day may tell us. Everyone is an equal sinner in the eyes of God. This is the point. Everyone should hear the gospel. So we have to ask ourselves as a congregation, do we qualify who we would allow ourselves to be seen with because our reputation is on the line? There's a side of us that wants people to somewhat earn or be around people that would not dampen our what we call testimony. According to Jesus, he had a horrible testimony amongst the culture. Horrible. He stayed with Sinners of the highest realm and tax collectors. They need to at least, in our minds, stop the sin. Because you understand, that woman entered the house with the reputation of that she hadn't stopped what she was doing. She entered in with, that's who she was. That's who she was. Jesus wasn't with people who had repented. There's no indication that these people had repented of their sins. As a matter of fact, they found out he was there and they were drawn to him. And he spent time with them. So it wasn't that they need to stop drugs or cheating on their wife or stop getting drunk or stop lying to their boss, etc. And then we'll spend time with them. And now they deserve to hear the gospel. The culture saw the wicked people of the day and could not believe Jesus was sitting down to eat with them. How dare he talk to a woman In public. What is he thinking? She even gets it. Wait a minute. How is it that you, a Jew, are talking to me? He completely ignores her question. 
He doesn't justify it. He doesn't clarify it. Where does he go to? You know, if you understood who I was, you would have asked of me for eternal life, and I would give it to you. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and just go down that rabbit hole. What are you talking about, eternal water, living water? What we learn from John is that the gospel is the great equalizer. That's what's going on here. His own disciples didn't even understand this. They walk up on the center and go, wait a minute. Jesus should not be talking to her. I don't care for my own life or for your life how disciplined you are. I don't care how well you've raised your own children or how well you were raised. You received the gospel. The same gospel, the same grace as a sinner as anyone else in history has ever received the gospel. My kids who are relatively good kids, at least right now they're sitting quiet, will receive the same grace, those, the same amount of grace, the same way of salvation, the same message goes to them as it does to those who participated in the Holocaust. We nod our head in agreement, but we know in our heart that it's hard to hear. If our understanding of the gospel is that the gospel is the great equalizer, that means it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, and Jesus demonstrated this while on this earth. Everyone is equally in need and equally deserves the gospel. The word deserve has to be removed because there is no deserving. Everyone needs the gospel, period. Whether you are a murderer or you are a moralist. Now, if you've ever read the conversion of Paul, you know, the church leaders were a little skeptical. Hey, I'm a Christian now. And they're going, yeah, right, you're going to infiltrate into our church here, and then you're going to take us all to jail and kill us like you've been doing. And, you know, Paul had to earn some respect, some time. He had to get some cred with some, some of the leaders there. But the grace that that man preached, he himself understood the great equalizer of the gospel. I mean, he had put people to death for the very thing that he is now preaching. And this is Paul's ministry. I don't, want to make nothing, I don't want to make nothing known among you except for Christ and Him crucified. As we go through the rest of John and the details of John and the story, with this is our background. The story will now make sense. Jesus isn't just trying to make conversation with some lady that walks up and He's like, well, I'm thirsty and now I guess I can, like when He sit on a plane, well, I guess I'm on a plane. I, hey, have you ever heard the gospel before? There's a purpose behind what he's doing. And I think if we miss that point, we miss the whole purpose of this entire chapter, of this entire book. So let's just, from a historical standpoint, let's just back up to chapter 2. Huge crowd comes to Jesus. We want to follow you. We believe in you. We profess you. And Jesus goes, I reject all of you. Because... You aren't believing in me as the Son and the Messiah. You're believing me as the miracle worker. He steps right into a conversation with who? 
an upright man, a man who is clearly accepted by the culture, not only accepted by the culture, but put in a place of leadership to teach. Jesus describes him as, you're a teacher of the Jews. And what does he do to this man? He gives him the same message in the same way to a woman who has five different husbands and the man she's with right now is not her husband. Same message. Exactly the same. Back to back. Do you think John's trying to tell us something? The gospel is not based upon your status as a human being on this earth. Never has been and never will be. The gospel is always the equalizer. So when we think about the gospel here in Brentwood or in Franklin or in Spring Hill or in Columbia, wherever we are, we may not be dealing with the scum of the earth. They might live in a different part of town. But you know what? The gospel is still the great equalizer. And those who smell good and look good and sound good and know how to find every book in the Bible still need the gospel as the drug addict and the human trafficker that are in downtown Nashville. They are in the same need of grace for the same amount of grace. And we have to be careful that we never, ever allow ourselves to to, to separate those. I'm going to give you one last perspective, and we'll go to the table. There is a side of us <clears throat> that we can, we can struggle thinking, Jesus, friend of sinners, my friend, Jesus, my Savior, Jesus, how is it that you would save me and someone that is as atrocious as, we've used the illustration, a participant in the Holocaust, how can it you say that you love us the same and you saved it the same? There's a side of us that feels there's an injustice there. Because if you've never participated in anything remotely like this, you grew up in a good suburban home, and your life is clean for the most part, comparatively, there's a side of us that's like, how is it that Jesus can be the friend of me and the friend of this person? That's the injustice felt there. That's the injustice in this text, and that's what he wanted him to feel. That's how far away from the holiness of God you are. Relative goodness, morality is speaking as a comparative standpoint, means nothing in the eyes of God as it relates to your need of a Savior. As your need of a Savior. So when we come to the table this evening, men, if you want to get ready, this is where we have to, when we take of the bread and we take of the, of the juice, we have to stop and remind ourselves, it does not matter my relative goodness, my status, my history, my, how, however I was raised. God does not accept me. God does not say, friend of John, friend of anyone here, because of anything I've ever done. We are equally in need according to every human being in history. And the only reason why we can sit here and accept this grace that's been given to us is because of his love for us. Because of his love for us. Of course, if you're sitting here this evening and you're thinking, well, this act of taking the bread or act of taking communion is how I make myself right this evening, how I correct my week. I've had a bad week. I've had a bad month. 
It's how I make the status between God and I good again. That is not what we do here. And I know that you believe that, but it's a good reminder for us to have. So let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you did not accept us in this room because we are the morally clean. We are somewhat better than the rest. We have figured it out. We are the little s sinners. The same grace that saved me is the same grace that saves Paul and any sinner in humanity. It's how we fall on our knees and think to ourselves, how is it you could save anyone, let alone me? You consider me to be equally a sinner as anyone else in humanity, and yet your love saved me. In Jesus' name, amen.